Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good morning in Washington, D.C. to Shannon Tiezi, who we're thrilled to have back on the show. For those of you who are regular listeners to our show, Shannon joined us last year uh, to, I forget what the topic was, but it was something fascinating because we always enjoy having you on the show, Shannon. Uh, Shannon is the managing editor at the online news magazine The Diplomat. And if you are interested in all things Asia-Pacific, especially China, The Diplomat is really a fantastic resource. Uh, Very good morning and welcome back to this program. Great. It's a pleasure to be joining you guys again. Well, Shannon, the reason why we've asked you back is because you've been doing quite a bit of writing of late on uh, something called Obor or One one Belt, One Road, Idai Ilu in Chinese. And uh, that's actually, uh, you know, a very important subject these days because it's in the news quite a bit with respect to China's global grand strategy on trade. And Africa is very much implicated in this. Kobus, before we get too deep into our discussion, why don't you kind of set up what exactly is One Belt, One Road and why it's so important? One Belt, One Road is, uh, was, was announced in late 2013. Um, and it, it is essentially a big scheme that, that links China with the rest of the world um, through both maritime and, and uh, overland um, infrastructure. So it, it, it's, a, it's a series of, of rail links that's supposed to eventually link China via, South, uh, via Central Asia to Europe. Um, and then also um, uh, maritime links linking China through um, through Southeast Asia, um, eventually to Kenya, and then through the Suez Canal into into the Mediterranean. Um, and you know, it's 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 a massive undertaking. Um, it's mostly been discussed as something that's going to happen in the future, but it is actually happening already. I mean, uh, last week we saw the arrival of a first. A first uh, load of freight from China in Tehran via a new train line. So we can see that it's actually already kind of being ex- being expanded. Um, but it is obviously also an incredibly complicated kind of undertaking, um, and the, it, it raises a different kinds of anxieties all along the way. You know, kind of um, certainly a lot of a lot of enthusiasm, but also a certain certain amount of anxiety. Um, Shannon, you know, just just in in order to to discuss it in 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 the way that China is is planning um, one belt one road at the moment, is it mostly designed to take Chinese stuff out or to take you know kind of resources from elsewhere in or you know kind of how is that balance going to work? When you look at this massive project, there are a whole lot of different threads that are involved and interlinked. And so one aspect, as you mentioned, is creating transportation infrastructure links um, via rail or via port development on the maritime route that will make it much easier for Chinese products to cross through various regions, for example, cross through Central Asia to Europe, but also increase the trade on those waypoints as well. So that is definitely part of it. We've all heard about uh, China's overcapacity problem. And one way of solving that will be for China to use some of its massive overcapacity in these new projects and also to boost its exports, which we all know global economy is slowing down. China's exports are falling as part of that. So Fostering new markets is definitely a piece. Um, Another piece is uh, China 
imports a lot of resources from abroad, and particularly when it comes to energy imports, uh, imports oil and gas, it's very conscious of a series of choke points. For example, the Strait of Malacca, where in the event of a contingency, China would be very vulnerable to its oil imports being stymied. So part of this is building uh, overland pipelines that can help it bypass those choke points, diversify its energy imports, and diversify the routes that they take to reach China. So definitely um, increasing China's imports of resources and the sources and the routes that they take is a big part of this as well. Um, But it's not even all about infrastructure and boosting material trade. There's also some intriguing parts of this that have China talking about um, building up industrialization in some of the developing countries along the Belt and Road, which is particularly relevant for Africa and also talking about building up financial ties. Um, So it's part of the internationalization of the renminbi. So there's a whole lot of different threads that are all coming together under this giant framework of OBOR. Now, before we get into the specifics of Africa, I still want to kind of stay on the macro level here. And and Ian Bremmer, who is the very well-known president of the Eurasia Group, which is a kind of geopolitical consulting firm, he really highlights that this is a grand strategy. And he contrasts this, for example, with the United States, where he says lacks a global grand strategy. So talking about these threads that you say kind of intertwine with one another to form this grand strategy that Ian Bremmer talks about, I'd like you to help me kind of connect the dots here a little bit. So we've got the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. We have obviously the the building of the new uh, military base in Djibouti. Uh, there is, you know, development with the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization, the SCO, which is the Central Asia Forum, which is where a lot of the OBOR is passing through. Do all of these things kind of come back to OBOR, or are some of them separate and just coincidental that they're doing multiple things at the same time? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of the grand question because OBOR right now is still a little bit fuzzy in the sense that there's not a concrete definition of it. So what you have right now, um, is you have brand new projects like the AIIB that are very directly connected um, to OBOR and because China is going to use AIIB and the funds to fund the sort of infrastructure projects that it envisions as linking the Belt and Road together. Um, you also have initiatives that predate the official rollout of OBOR in late 2013, but are now being sort of roped into this larger framework. Um, for example, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Obviously, that has been around for over a decade. So its inclusion in OBOR, it's not really clear quite how that works, if this is actually a different approach China is taking, or if OBOR is just kind of a way of putting a nice label on things that China has already been doing. Um, so it, you can, in some senses, you could see almost anything China does in foreign policy as relating back to OBOR, particularly when it's taking place on the Eurasian continent, which is massive, and even Africa, as I'm sure we'll get to later. And that's because China brings it up in almost every foreign policy meeting. Um, they make some statement about you know, insert country name here is welcome to participate in the Belt and Road. Um, so from China's perspective, I think it's it's kind of a way of redefining China's place in the, you know, foreign policy architecture, if you want to go further and say the geostrategic architecture. It's about making China um, the leader of this giant initiative and 
China prefers the word initiative. They're a little leery of labeling this a strategy because they're worried that uh, that has negative connotations. And they want to tell people this is a collaborative, cooperative process where all countries have equal say. Uh, but China is obviously the leader. They're obviously yeah. spearheading this and defining it. Uh, so Nobody believes kind of- that everybody's got an equal say in this. I mean, I mean uh, that's yeah. just, you know. Kobus, let me, let me ask you a question that I've been struggling with with respect to Obor. And I think you might have some thoughts on this because – For a long time, you and I have talked about how China cannot be defined as a neo-colonial, neo-imperial power in in Africa, in part because the terms are very different here in the 21st century as they were in the pre-20th century. But there are parts of Obor that really bring back to me kind of the British imperial system, which the British set up a global trading network to move commodities and raw materials out of Africa and out of their colonies back to their points of industrial production, whether it was in the Caribbean for certain parts of sugar or whether it's in uh, in the United Kingdom for, for finished goods. And then they would re-export those products back into uh, their various colonial imperial markets. That has hallmarks of what we're seeing with Obor. Talk to me about why you think that might be the same or different than what we saw from previous imperial trading and grand strategies. Um, yes, on, on the one hand, I think that does seem to echo, you know, the way that the way that um, the the British system worked in the nineteenth century. On the other hand, I think what where, where the big problem or the big difference comes in is that. We've seen since 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 that system, um, you know, in in the nineteenth century, we've seen a, a splitting between manufacturing and design. Um, so now, you know, kind of Chinese-made goods are going everywhere, but they're not necessarily reflective of of a of a, a complete and overwhelming Chinese power. In, you know, kind of in the world. So you see, you see so things. A, a sh- being let designed. me give you an example. So a shoe is designed by Nike in Oregon but then is manufactured in China and then sold in anywhere else in the world. That's exactly, exactly. So, so is that shoe then, uh, you know, kind of an expression of American power or Chinese power? Um, you know, kind of because in the it's 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 um, equivalent in the you know, for example, all of the all of the cotton that that was produced, you know, kind of by the by the British Empire was uh, an expression of British power, pure and simple. You know, kind of they they pulled in the raw materials, manufactured and designed it in in in, in London, um, and then pushed it back out and sold it everywhere, and in the process shaped the way that you could imagine what clothes would look like. You know, kind of in a British way. So it shaped the way people thought not only the what what you know kind of what they bought but actually like how they thought about their own lives so in in this kind of divided way where it's kind of half china but but where a lot of the intellectual work is actually being done in the us or europe or japan um you know kind of there it's not so easy to say that it's a colonial system because because china is sits within a system but it doesn't necessarily shape our entire horizon um, our mental horizon, the way that, that that British colonialism did, simply because the world is also more complicated. Shannon, what do you think um, of that question? Uh, yeah. the, the comparisons between what China is planning to do in the future and what's starting to do now versus some of the other kind of global trading systems either set up by the British or anybody else? 
I think the most obvious point is that China is uh, very much aware of the comparisons between it and uh, the British colonial empire. And it's very sensitive to them. Uh, if you want to get a rise from a Chinese diplomat, one of the easiest ways is to accuse them of neocolonialism in Africa. Uh, so they're deliberately framing their interactions in Africa as different from British colonialism and as a celebration of uh, what China likes to call win-win cooperation. So whenever they help fund construction of a school or a government building or a road or a railroad, they point to that and they try to describe all of the benefits that it is bringing to these African countries. Um, and China's push right now to um, increase industrialization in Africa will be really interesting to keep an eye on how that goes, because that's really a place where they can more definitively separate themselves from colonialism. Um, because if they're building up industry in Africa, that would obviously be a very unique thing, um, rather than just exporting the resources and importing their own goods. And presumably, you know, kind of once that system is set up, it will be possible for for all of these these countries along the road to use it to trade with each other. You know, kind of so it's, you know that that system running from the the Chinese built integrated um, East African rail network that then would link to the rail network up through the Suez Canal um, would you know presumably also make trade between East Africa and Europe easier you know kind of with with China not getting a direct kind of payout out, out of that but but you know kind of having been the one that set up the system to begin with. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's why China likes to say that the Silk Road is an initiative. Uh, if you talk to Chinese thinkers about it, they'll say, well, you know, it's not just China. If Kenya and Egypt want to work together on a leg of the Silk Road without China directly involved, that's totally fine. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. We're not seeing other countries take the initiative, certainly not within the framework of the Belt and Road and, and saying, well, we're doing X project that fits into this framework. But it does seem like that's China's ultimate goal is to have almost every major connectivity project labeled as uh, this is brought to you by the Belt and Road in some way or another. Well, let's get down to specifics now with regard to how Obor affects Africa, because at the end of the day, it's not affecting Africa. It's affecting parts of Africa, and in fact, a very small part of Africa, which is the Eastern Corridor, kind of northeast, starting up at Egypt and the Suez Canal, going down east, uh, you know, Ethiopia, Djibouti, then, then all the way as far down as Ethiopia in the port of Mombasa. Um, so can you walk us through some of the kind of the milestones and the bigger projects that you've been writing about on this Eastern African kind of hub and what countries in specific will be impacted by Obor? Sure. Um, so one of them is something that Kobus already mentioned, which is this East Africa rail network that right now is centered in Kenya, um, but it has grander dreams to link Kenya with a bunch of its neighboring capitals. So the port of Mombasa at Kenya is probably going to be a stop in the Maritime Silk Road. If you look at the sort of semi-official map that Xinhua has put out of this Silk Road and the Maritime Silk Road routes. Um, Kenya is actually Nairobi specifically, which is weird because it's not a port, is the only country in Africa that has a stop labeled on the map. So Kenya, I think we can safely say, is part of China's interests on in terms of African hubs on the Belt and Road. Um, 
If then you look at the route, it's pretty clear that Egypt is going to play a central role because the planned route goes right up through the Suez Canal. So obviously, um, when Xi Jinping was in Egypt earlier this year, he talked a lot about making Egypt into a hub on the maritime Silk Road and has signed a lot of trade deals there and a lot of Chinese investment on their bilateral trading zone on the Suez Canal. Um, and also, again, looking at the route, even though it's not labeled as a point, I think Djibouti is going to benefit from this a lot. And most of the attention in China Djibouti has been all about the new military facility, which is important. You know, it's China's first overseas military facility. But part of the reason that it wants a military facility there is to help ensure that this new trade network it's envisioning can be defended adequately from the pirates that are um, plaguing that region. And we know China's been involved in anti-piracy operations for years now. Let, and that's but let me why. ask you a quick question about that. Is it Are that the pirates or I've talked to several sources in Beijing who've said that the kind of Indian Ocean, the biggest concern that they have, you know, from the Gulf of Aden into the Indian Ocean is not the pirates, but the Americans and that they are concerned that they're in the event of a conflict potentially in the South China Sea that may start. But that, you know, Chinese oil lanes in in the Gulf of Aden and the the Indian Ocean could be cut off by the U.S. Navy. And so they want to have an ability to project some amount of force to to challenge the U.S. Navy in that part of the world if in the event that does occur. Have you heard anything to that extent as well? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, And as I mentioned previously, when you look at the overarching picture of the Belt and Road, I think it's very clear that part of the motivation is to eliminate their right now pretty extreme reliance on certain choke points, um, particularly with the path that their oil imports from the Middle East take to reach China. So some of that is going to be helped by the pipelines that they're building to bring oil and gas from Central Asia to China. Um, But yes, I think ultimately they do want to be able to project power into the Indian Ocean region. Um, And it's not just to defend their oil shipping, though. I think a part of the Belt and Road, if you look long term, if you look at China's vision for particularly its Navy, but its military overall, is they've said they want to play a larger role in safeguarding sea lanes of communication in safeguarding international trade. And part of that is, as you mentioned, because they're a little bit worried about depending on a country that's rapidly morphing into a strategic rival, um, the U.S., to defend all their sea lanes for them. That doesn't seem like the best strategic decision China could make. But another part of it is also about global prestige. If China can sort of muscle its way into an equal role as a defender of the international economic trade order, then it'll have kind of reached, you know, the China dream in some sense. So, you know, from from what I've read, the, the overland network is one thing and and it's progressing but the the maritime silk road side of this is actually harder to to uh, to pull off because there's so much um, tension and and worry in Southeast Asia and India and so on about uh, you know about the expansion of China's maritime power like how, how do you see that developing um, in the future yeah I think that's absolutely correct um, right now the overland Silk Road we're seeing a bit more um, success and cohesion in terms of an actual route being sketched out you mentioned we had the first overland train from eastern China to Tehran so we already have an overarching route 
on the Overland Silk Road. The Maritime Silk Road, you're seeing some specific nodes see a lot of success. Um, Gwadar Port in Pakistan, um, Sri Lanka is now agreed again to move forward with China's developing of a port on Colombo. But a lot of the Southeast Asian countries, as you mentioned, are pretty hesitant. Um, you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, they've said certain things about how they're interested, but they're keeping it at arm's length because they are concerned about China's behavior in the South China Sea. And India as well, obviously, has serious concerns um, in, in terms of China's intentions, particularly in the Indian Ocean. So we're actually seeing China have more successes with the Maritime Silk Road a bit farther away geographically. And there's not really a link right now. There's kind of a gap. You know, it's how does it actually get from China to Guadalajara? Does it, is it just going to skip over all of Southeast Asia? Because right now those links and those pieces aren't there. Well, that has a lot to do with the current uh, escalation or militarization of the South China Sea. And uh, once China kind of completes, if it is able to complete the militarization and the full ownership of the Nine Dash Line, that will make that a little bit easier. Um, I think you're being very generous and modest when you say concern, because it is outright terror and fear here in Southeast Asia about what the Chinese are doing. And, it, you know, tensions are very, very high here. Um, let me just ask you a question here about the financing of all this, because Xi Jinping, when he dreamed this up in 2013, or whoever did, I'm assuming it came from the, the mind of Xi Jinping, because it's that bold and ambitious that it would. Um, you know, they had $3 trillion in foreign exchange reserves. The stock market was still doing very, very well. Uh, there wasn't the outflow at about $700 billion a year in capital that seems to be just draining out of China at a very fast pace. Uh, you know, China's economy today is very different than it was back in 2013 when these designs first kind of came out. Can China actually pull this off? And this is where you know, I spoke with a with a with a defense uh, analyst in Washington who said he doesn't think the Chinese can pull this off, and that the West is being hoodwinked on all of this because they don't have the cash to to fulfill a global strategy of this scale. Um, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to keep an eye on this. Um, they have said they're going to commit $40 billion. This is separate from the AIIB, which is envisioned as a multilateral investment bank. But just China alone has said they're going to set up a $40 billion Silk Road fund. And as their economy continues to slow and there's more pressure for them to keep pumping up investment domestically, they're going to have a hard time justifying spending that amount of money overseas. Um, and I've also heard a lot from Chinese foreign policy experts who are saying, you know, why is China pumping all of this investment money into countries that are more or less bad risks? Um, you know, China has a history of investing a lot in countries where there's not a lot of competition because Western businesses don't see it as a stable investment. You know, for example, there's a lot of talk about how China won the Iraq war because it it pumped so much money into Iraq's oil sector. Well, now with the extreme instability we're seeing there and, and the Islamic state threat, that's not looking like such a wise move. So there's a lot of resistance from spending these vast sums in areas where you're not, you can't expect to see an, an extreme return. Uh, but the other part of the puzzle, and this is something we touched on earlier, is that China does see the development of this Belt and Road as it, part of its long-term domestic economic strategy, as helping 
open up access to markets where it can then help boost its exports. So I don't think it's going to be the first thing that gets cut, but they're probably going to have to progress more slowly than they might have envisioned in 2013. And it's definitely going to be more difficult to achieve this massive, ambitious vision. So for a lot of these countries, the benefit of dealing with China is easy money. And if that dries up, it's going to be very interesting to see how many willing partners that they still have. Um, and to which extent do you feel this scheme is married to the political legacy of Xi Jinping himself? Um, uh, do, do you foresee the same kind of um, enthusiasm for the scheme in a post-Xi era, whenever that is? Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the question. Is When will Xi Jinping actually step down? But assuming <laughs> that he does a scheduled leave office at, at the end of 2022, um, I think it'll depend on how successful it's been, really. If it's booming, you know, no Chinese leader is going to just abandon it. But this is very much a kind of Xi Jinping trademark phrase at this point. So if it's not doing well, if it's struggling because China's economy is struggling and China hasn't been able to build up these networks, I don't think they will abandon it entirely uh, because there's legitimacy issues that span the entire party leadership, right? They don't want to just turn their back on something a previous leader said, but you might see it downplayed um, to a great extent as many of Hu Jintao's supposed contributions to party thought have been sort of downplayed and minimized. I mean, there's one thing to build it. There's another thing to maintain it, which is equally difficult, especially through some of these more volatile regions. But Kobus, mm-hmm. I want to bring you back to our conversation a couple years ago with Howard French, who uh, who wrote a book on, on, on Africa, and he's a professor at Columbia University and a former journalist. And one of the things that he pointed out was the Standard Gauge Railway, which is the railway we're talking about in Eastern Africa. Uh, the financing which came through China was much more expensive than if Kenya went on to the global market and through the IMF and other international NGOs and international organizations to secure financing for it. So even though it sounds great to get this infrastructure, uh, there are some people who are pointing out, like Howard French, that it's not necessarily in Africa's best interest. We have the second concern about the quality of the infrastructure that's being built. Uh, reports come in time and time and time again that you know the, 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 the you know the power plant in Botswana now we just heard a couple weeks ago is is breaking down to the point where the government wants to sell it. Some of the port infrastructures around Africa are, are, are not anywhere near what they thought it would be. So I think there's a little bit of room for skepticism about the quality of all of this. Shannon, let's kind of end our discussion with you getting on your kind of you know, shaking up the magic eight ball and seeing what you see coming in the near term and in the long term to try and put what this is for Africa in context. Do you think in the long run, this Eastern African zone where the Maritime Silk Road or One Belt, One Road will pass through, will be a benefit or will it be neutral or possibly even uh, be a negative in the long term? What's your thought? Um, I think that... uh... China has been sort of reluctant to really rope Africa into Obor. Um, And I think that demonstrates that Africa is kind of low on the totem pole when it comes to the Silken Road. And part of that is just, you know, geographically, if you look at the map, Africa is kind of separate from the main trunk of the routes. But China issued its big 2015 Africa policy paper last year, and it didn't mention the belt and the road once. Uh, And it's easy to look at projects that China is doing, for example, the Kenya Railroad, and say how, oh, they could easily fit into the Silk Road, but they haven't been 
directly tied in. Um, so if we're talking about the feasibility of this project moving forward, those might be the first ones to get cut if China is actually in a funding crunch. So that's the big caveat, right? It's like, is any of this actually going to materialize, especially on Africa, which is lower on China's Silk Road priorities? In terms of it being a net positive or negative, um, I tend towards a net positive, uh, probably not a game changer for Africa. China's very excited about talking about how its infrastructure and industrialization investments could like change Africa's economic future. And it's, it's always kind of funny how China likes to talk about Africa as Africa writ large. Uh, it wrote an Africa policy paper. But as you mentioned, you know, really what they're talking about is their investments in Eastern Africa, a very specific select handful of different countries. So I would say certain countries, um, Kenya could stand to benefit. I'm sure Egypt is very excited about getting funding for its projects and not only from China. The interesting thing about this is that countries like Egypt, um, possibly Djibouti, Kenya, they can leverage China's interest to kind of pull other investors in. Um, Al-Sisi was just in both South Korea and Japan, and he kind of dangled the, the carrot of, oh, don't you want to jump on board the Suez Canal investment train? You know, implicitly, China's already there. So particularly Japan, maybe you want to get in on this action. So to the extent that uh, these countries' governments can be smart about this, and and leverage additional investment and really build up their trade infrastructure networks without being totally dependent on China, I think it could be a net positive for the countries in the region. Kobus, let's get your final thoughts from you. And the final word goes to you about kind of where China, where Africa fits in the broader context of China. I think Shannon made a good point here that really in the scheme of things, it's not that important. And that's really why we're trying to have these kind of conversations relative to other parts of the world that Obor goes through, uh, particularly Southeast Asia and Central Asia. Africa is playing a bit role in this. But uh, what's your thoughts on the context that projects like One Belt, One Road and Africa have with respect to China? You know, in, in this uh, at this moment, I actually want to go back to what what you said about you know the point that you made about about to which extent it it resembles old school British colonialism. You know, kind of, I think we agree that it in a lot or imperialism lot of ways it doesn't. Actually, in this case, yeah, exactly. Um, imperialism is a better word. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, it doesn't re, re, you know kind of um, reflect it, but in other ways, it still is. And, you know, kind of, it still isn't outside agenda. It still isn't Africa's agenda. Um, so I, I would completely agree with, with Shannon that, you know, kind of these countries can get a lot out of it if they're smart. Um, and, you know, kind of, I think it might be good for Africa to think strategically about what it needs to, to um, you know, to, to grow its own internal economy and its own internal markets. Um, because, of course, you know, kind of Africa is a large untapped market. It is potentially if, you know, kind of if the world economy is looking for new markets, which it is, um, you know, kind of it is potentially a very, a very promising market. But that's going to depend on, on doing things that are adjacent to but different from 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 Obor to for example so you know kind of you know it would make a lot of sense to have a, a high high um, speed rail connection between South Africa and Kenya you know that is potentially linked to Obor but it is Obor you know kind of and and you know Africa needs to be smart and hard nosed um, to to set up those pieces of infrastructure and those links um, to you know kind of to, in order to not have its situation which which it has at the moment of having 
you know, islands of development in a big sea of underdevelopment. Um, and I think that that is the bigger challenge for, for Africa. So Obor is very, very big. And it's what we're pro- trying to do here on the show by kind of contextualizing Africa within the broader scheme of China's foreign policy. We spoke about China and South America, which was very interesting. And then we're going to be talking about China and Southeast Asia. And that way it gives people who follow the China-Africa discussion a little bit of perspective and context for where Africa does fit into the global picture. And Shannon, I think, framed it very nicely to say that, it, you know, semantically and diplomatically, I think it plays a very important role. But at the end of the day, in terms of the real politic and where China's strategic interests lie, it still is rather small. In fact, probably even a bit player. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to follow Shannon, she's over at thediplomat.com. That's all one word, The Diplomat. Uh, She's the managing editor there. And Shannon, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing and all the different things that you're doing uh, with The Diplomat, what's the best way that they can stay in touch with you? Um, You should probably follow me on Twitter. It's at Shannon Tiezi, T-I-E-Z-Z-I. Excellent. And it is a real, I do follow you on Twitter and you are a font of information for us. So we really do appreciate it. Again, Shannon is the managing editor at thediplomat.com, which is a fantastic resource for all Asia Pacific news. And Kobus, if people want to follow what you're doing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? You'll find me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there we curate this this drip feed of 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 endless endless number of China Africa related news stories um, every four hours. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at E O Lander, E O L A N D E R, tweeting the top China and Africa stories almost every day. And then also, if you want to follow our podcast and all the various things that we're doing, we've got mobile apps now on both Android and iOS. Uh, just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash apps. Uh, and there on our website, you'll find a sign up for our newsletter, which we send out every Monday with about four or five stories on the top China Africa headlines of the week. Uh, so just go ahead and sign up for that. We're over a thousand subscribers now. So we're really thrilled to see that list continue to grow. And of course, we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>